Science and Wisdom Live is a project of Jamyang London Buddhist Center, a non-profit organization. Please consider supporting us with a donation to help us keep our podcasts and videos free and ad-free. To support us now, please visit our website at scienceandwisdomlive.com. episode is an excerpt of one of our Science and Wisdom Dialogues. To listen to the full recording, please follow the link in the podcast description. I see the ultimate nature of consciousness as vast and limitless. It's a vibrating, loving awareness that exists beyond time and space. And it's simultaneously the essence of the universe and also the essence of our own awareness. And you asked, what is its function? And I think as this infinite consciousness is the essence and the foundation of the universe, I believe it is responsible for bringing this manifest universe into existence through its own infinite freedom and creativity. And this is part of its way of getting to know and experience all aspects of itself. And in fact, there's an ancient text from Kashmir from the 10th century by a um, sage named Utpaladeva that says that this act of creation is a play. And the term they use is krida in Sanskrit. And it means that manifestation is a playful, joyful, loving act of universal consciousness as a way of knowing itself. And in fact, the scientist Bernardo Kastrup, who is from the Netherlands, has said something similar. He says, life may be the way universal consciousness becomes cognitively aware of itself. And physicist Federico Fagin says that each act of self-knowing of the one consciousness creates what he calls a consciousness unit, a small self as a part of itself with the capacity to perceive and know itself and act with free will. And of course, that's all of us and the things of the universe. And of course, then people ask why we don't experience that consciousness fully. And I just want to say, I believe it's because in our own normal embodied existence, various parts of our mind-brain complex act as filters, that is partial barriers of this experience. For example, there is considerable research now that John Verveke may talk about as well, about the default mode network in the brain, including the medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex, which creates the narrative in our mind-brain complex of who we are and how we relate to the world. And I believe these stories fill much of our awareness during the day, filtering out those other experiences of vastness. And in fact, there are research studies by Judson Brewer and Roland Griffiths and others that show that when the default mode network's activity is reduced in meditation or with mind-altering substances like psilocybin, a more expanded awareness is experienced as well as a sense of interconnectedness with others and with the universe. And this is often described as a mystical experience of oneness, joy, and absolute love with our identity with the small self seeming to dissolve and only one vast self remaining. So in concluding, I would say, according to this view, the brain and its sense organs are not the source of our mental experience, but they act as a receiver or a filter. And they typically reduce the extent of information we experientially receive from that vast consciousness, which I believe is our essence. Mm. Beautiful, that very spiritual answer. 
from a scientist. So. <laughs> and Swamiji, do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, your perspective and your tradition's perspective? Um, thank you, Scott. And if I were to put it in one word, I would say that, what she just said just now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. <it's... laughs> I'll put it more or less the same thing in a, from a uh, different perspective and different language. So we can start with the function of consciousness, and that would be illumination, revelation, uh, experience itself. So what does consciousness do? Uh, it uh, reveals itself and it reveals everything else. So there's a Sanskrit word for that, prakasha, which is also the Sanskrit word for light. So light is often a metaphor. We don't mean that consciousness is a material light, but it's somewhat like light. For example, if you switch on a light, uh, it reveals everything in a dark room and it reveals its own existence also. Exactly like that, consciousness reveals everything in our life. If you just think about it, our life is basically the illumination of consci uh, consciousness illumining things. So whether in different modes, whether we are seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or touching or thinking or remembering or desiring um, or the sense of self, all of that these are experiences and all experiences are nothing but this illumination consciousness illumining objects and these objects may be external objects like a computer or a flower or a person out there or it could be internal objects internal i mean internal to the mind first person experiences of thoughts feelings memories all of these are revealed by by consciousness so consciousness plus an object is experience Professor Verbecki, how about your perspective on you know subjective versus supposedly objective uh, explorations of consciousness? So I come from a uh, a generation. It's the newest generation of cognitive science that wants to challenge that framework fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Cartesian framework uh, that reality is divided up exclusively and exhaustively into the subjective and the objective is extremely problematic. And the whole tradition following from Descartes has revealed how problematic that is. If you get the idea that there's a subjectivity that is completely distinct and separate from an objectivity that is also completely distinct and separate from an objectivity, you there is no way to reconnect them. There's no way to reconnect them. You are left with an absolute skepticism, an absolute solipsism. You, you, even your own memories of your past, because they involve memories of your body that's in the objective world, become separated from you. When, Descartes says cogito ergo sum, it just dissolves into there's exper experience right here, right now. That's it. Think instead, uh, instead of thinking of the mind in here, inside the subject, and there's a world of objects, I want you to think of other kinds of relations that are supposed to bridge between them. There's the epistemic relation of truth. And we, we, of course, are mistaken if we say truth is objective or subjective. Truth is precisely that which would relate the objective and the subjective together. Uh, because if it doesn't do that, it wouldn't be knowable truth, et cetera, et cetera. And I won't go into that argument. A lot of people have been pursuing it. I want to try and give you an analogy of this. The, the adaptivity of an organism, an important biological feature in Darwinian evolution, is the adaptivity in the organism? Is the great white short shark possess adaptivity? No, because if I put it in the uh, Sahara Desert, it dies. Is the adaptivity in the environment? That doesn't make any sense. 
environments support many different kinds of creatures. Where's the adaptivity? It, it is a real relation, a transjective relation between the organism and the environment. Look at this bottle. We often talk about the mind grasping things. Is the graspability in the bottle? No, because an, an ant can't grasp it. A paramecium can't grasp it. Is the graspability in my hand? No, I can't grasp Africa or E equals MC squared. I mean, physically grasp. The grasping is in a real relation of mutual shaping and mutual fittedness between my hand and the object. It's an affordance for action. This is Gibson's idea of perception. Perception is about affordances. And affordances are not in me and they're not in the world. They are properly between me and the world. And that's how awareness works too. That's the intentionality that is so central to consciousness. I'd love to move on to talking about meditation because uh, it's something you know each of you have touched on a little bit in, in your work and your personal experience. Uh, and just ask how, how can we work with consciousness through meditation and contemplation and even what we call mystical experiences? Um, I was rec I recently saw that science even has something called a mystical experience questionnaire, like 30 I've questions. I've used it. I've used it. <laughs> to I've used it yeah. in an experiment. Yeah. yeah, maybe you could start. Maybe you could start, um, Professor Rovacki, about um, the role of meditation, contemplation, mystical experiences in probing consciousness. I think you can study these experiences in a way that helps be very careful about what it is they can tell us, how they can provide us knowledge, which is one thing, which is very different from how um, we can train them to become wiser. And those aren't the same thing. Knowledge is about evidence to establish truth, right? Um, whereas wisdom is, you know, about zeroing in on what's relevant so to avoid being self-deceived and self-destructive, avoid foolishness. Knowledge overcomes ignorance, wisdom overcomes foolishness, and ignorance and foolishness are not the same. Now, why am I saying all that? Because I think it's very, very, you have to be very, very careful of concluding about that you've acquired a certain kind of knowledge from an altered state of consciousness because of the pluralism problem. The pluralism problem is that, right, um, people will go into these experiences and come out with different descriptions. This is Katz's uh, uh, sort of critique. Like you can study, people will go into experiences and they'll come out of this and they've had this profound mystical experience and they'll say, I experienced everything as one and now I know there's a God. And people will come out of this and say, I experienced everything as one and now I know there's no God. And, and believe me, I can give you lots of reports like that where there's all kinds of variation. And so you have to be very, very careful about what is actually shared and what isn't. I think what's happening in these mystical experiences, I think there's very good objective evidence that it gives people two important components of becoming wiser. These mystical experiences tend to make people more, they find more meaning in their life. That's the experience, that's the, the study we ran. It's a simple study. I, I would have thought that people had done this before. Apparently not. How many mystical experiences have you had? How meaningful do you find your life? Is there a correlation? You would have thought somebody had bothered to do that. Nobody done it. The answer is yes, it's there's a predictive relation. People who have mystical experience, the more mystical experiences people have, 
the more meaningful they'll find their lives. Where meaning isn't semantic meaning. It's not the content of propositions. It's a sense of connectedness to yourself, to each other, to the world. It's in that sense, it's realization. It's that connectedness to reality. I think we have to be very, very careful about what these experiences do afford us and what they don't afford us. I try to answer that, relieve that tension between the perennialists and the constructivists by saying, I'm not sure about fundamental knowledge, but I am, there's really good empirical evidence for an improvement in wisdom. And I think the fact that our culture has lost the distinction between wisdom and knowledge is also very, very problematic and can distort how we try to answer some of these questions. The question that is often asked by great meditation teachers to their students to help them see their essential nature as awareness. And again, I love the idea that John just used of the frame, whether it's the frame of our glasses and the fact that we don't see it. But I think what they're trying to get people to do is to ship their frame of seeing only the contents of their consciousness as their awareness versus actually recognizing that there is awareness that's pouring out of that um, point of awareness within them and that actually make it broader. And of course, that question that we all know is who am I? And it's that way of helping them see the difference between pure awareness and contents of awareness. And as Swamiji would tell us, it's often called Atma Vichara in Sanskrit. So in answering the question, I would say that typically when we don't recognize our pure awareness as the essence of who we are, we say things like, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm confused, I'm fat, I'm thin, identifying obviously with our emotions or with the qualities of our body. And what I found is that when we keep turning to our question of who am I and say to ourselves, who had that experience? Or in that experience, where were you? Where was I? Where is that I located? We begin to see that the I isn't the body and it's not the content of our thoughts, but that awareness is always there behind those contents. And I found that that was a very powerful um, exercise for me to begin to do myself in my own practices to begin to see that truly there was this awareness that has no content per se that was shining outward. And of course, as soon as I try to say the word awareness, I've made it into an object. And so I have to like even try to keep going back to who is that I. So I think that that is one very powerful way that I'm sure Swamiji uses and many other people use in trying to help us recognize, do a different frame on who we really are. We are not aware of the contents of our mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptual inputs from the sense organs. All of that comes into the mind. And that which experiences the mind by our principle, the seer and the seen must be different, must be in some sense distinct from the mind. Um, and the mind changes continuously. The seer does not change. The mind uh, has various constituents, um, you know, various kinds of thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories. The seer is one. So this seer, the seer of the mind, um, which can... What can we say about it? Well, we can say that it's not an object. The, you see the ultimate frame, if you think about it that way, which is not part of any uh, constituent of any framing process. It's not an object. It must be of the nature of awareness because it gives us first-person experience. All of it is revealed to that. 
and it yet it's never an object of uh, to to any kind of process it's always beyond all objects beyond all the con contents of all frames maybe you call it the ultimate frame or something that's what the last part of the verse means the seer is never seen um, so you call it a no thing it's not a thing everything else is a thing to it but it's not a thing in itself um, that doesn't mean it's nothing it's clearly um, central to all our all our knowing um, so notice what has been done in this process. And there are meditative practices associated with this insight. Um, so what has been done is you go from an external world, you note the body and the sensory system, then you note the mind and contents of the mind. Then I can't say that you note consciousness or awareness by itself. You come to see that that is who I am. And that seeing and understanding is also done at the level of the mind, which now has become an object to you, has become a revealed process to you. From an Advaitic perspective, if you have objects and consciousness or subject, and if the idea is to appreciate ourselves as a limitless awareness, non-objective awareness, one way meditation might help is to provide dramatic contents, you know, hitherto unseen, unexperienced, and not experienced contents. So you have a mystical experience of God or oneness or light or, or you know, the voice of God speaking to you. These are mystical experiences, but these are just contents also. So that would be one way of um, somehow making the mind free itself of its ordinary range of contents and see some extraordinary content. Mm. But Advaita Vedanta says that what pure consciousness is, our real nature, it's always available, not just available when we have mystical experiences. That's the beauty, I think, of the Advaitic approach. It says that it's available right now. As you're thinking, when you mentioned the default default um, default mode network. Network. Yes, default mode network, and how you suppress that um, by psilocybin or meditation or something, and then you get extraordinary experiences. Advaita would say, even when the default mode network is working in in high gear, you as pure consciousness are available. It would object to the terminology of a pure consciousness event. What Advaita would say is that you have uh, suppressed objects presented to consciousness to such an extraordinary extent for a while that you thought you had a pure consciousness event. But pure consciousness is not an event. It's that to which all events appear and which reveals all events. Mm. And so the way to appreciate yourself as pure consciousness would not be to generate various kinds of mystical experiences. You could do that. That would be a wonderful way. But also to see that it's constantly, all the time, choicelessly, available to us and that's what we are.